Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. I know we've mentioned this several times already this morning, but we thank you for what today is. We thank you for what we celebrate today, the 4th of July. This new nation that was founded, uh, as one of our elders mentioned, on Christian principles, on biblical principles. We don't deserve your grace. We don't deserve your favor. We don't deserve your mercy. But we thank you for all of it that you've given to us. We thank you for using us. For using us as a sending off point for missionaries all around the world to take your gospel and then to return back to a home of peace. We thank you for using us to, like I said, stem the tide of evil all around the world throughout the years. Thank you for using us to be a light. And Lord, that light is dim now, but it's not out. We know that you have many, many of your children here, a righteous remnant that you continue to bless this nation because of. We thank you for that. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your word. That even though many in our nation have turned their back on your word, We know that your word is our only hope. Your word is our only life. It it is our truth. It It is because Jesus is the word. And because of that, this is the one way, the one truth, the one source of life. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would go forth today. Illuminate our minds. Open our spiritual eyes to have to hear what you have for us today. And that it wouldn't just stay as facts or knowledge in our minds, but that it would work its way down into our hearts and bear real fruit in our lives. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, of course, and this doesn't happen very often, but just so happens to be the 4th of July or American Independence Day. The day that we as believers living in America... We thank God for this country of blessing and especially religious freedom. Indeed, it has had ugly portions in its 250 years of of existence. But God has moved, intervened, and provided people to incite change for the better treatment of all humankind. We know the famous names of our nation's birth, Revere, Adams, Adams, Franklin, Jefferson, Washington, Lafayette, and many, many more. But there's a man who worked in the very early days of our nation's history that not too many people know of, who is not usually taught about in history class, but who had a major impact on our infant nation. In 1789, a mere six years following the end of the Revolutionary War, and only a year following the ratification of the U.S. Constitution, Dr. David Hozak graduated from what is now known today as Princeton University. He went on to graduate with his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1791. Hozak would devote his medical career to three things that nurtured the health and well-being of his new nation that still impact medicine today. Number one, in 1798, Hozak 
founded the very first maternity clinic in New York City in order to provide maternity care to poor pregnant women and help them survive childbirth. Number two, Hozak was a driving force to make medical schools more, uh, medical degrees more accessible to more people by founding medical schools across this new nation that he was a part of, including the founding of the medical college at New Jersey's own Rutgers University. And number three, in 1801, Hozak bought and tended a medically focused botanical garden at the time just outside the then city limits of Manhattan. It was in this garden, the nation's first public botanical garden, that Hozak ended up procuring and tending over 3,000 species of medicinal herbs and plants, even procuring some rare finds from Thomas Jefferson's own collection. The main purpose of this, of course, was to further medicine through the study of these qualities and naturally occurring plants native to America. Unfortunately, Hozak could no longer fund this garden at a certain point, and the land was bought by the state of New York. Later, this parcel of land was leased by Columbia University to the Rockefeller family, and the land that the nation's first botanical garden stood on is now where Rockefeller Center is now built on. One last side note on this oft-forgotten figure in the early days of our nation's history is perhaps Hozak's most enduring moment in U.S. history, that of being the family physician to Alexander Hamilton's family. In fact, when Hamilton dueled Aaron Burr in 1804, an event enshrined in Broadway's 2015 production of Hamilton, it was Hozak who tended to Hamilton's wound, which would become fatal to Hamilton. While a lot of Hozak's medical facilities, along with his medicinal botanical garden, no longer exist, all of his pursuits were the predecessors of a lot in modern medicine today. Similar to Hozak, there is a man that we're going to be talking about today, that we're going to be spending the majority of our time on this morning, who God called to be, not in the spotlight, but to be the forerunner or the predecessor of who John's already described as the Word, the origin of life itself, and the light of the world, Jesus. Over the past few weeks, we've dived into, this, into the Apostle John's description of who this Jesus of Nazareth, of whose earthly ministry he would devote the rest of this book on, really is. He wasn't just a man. He wasn't even just the Messiah. In the first few verses of the first chapter of this book, John has expanded on Jesus' deity as God, who Jesus really is. John first describes Jesus as the Word, taking that already understood first century concept in both the Jewish and Greco-Roman backgrounds of the personified wisdom, law, or word of God, and reason that held the universe together. What was referred to simply as the word in that first century world. And point blank declaring, all that you already understand about this personified concept of the word is and can be found in a person, the God-man, Jesus. 
the Christ. As such, this God-man was the way that all of creation, including humanity, life itself, and the human soul came into existence. He was truly the embodiment of the word of God when he spoke things into existence. Everything about who we are, including our eternal soul, we owe to Jesus as the life. Because of this, when we accept Jesus as our Savior and our King, all that we're doing is merely giving back to him our spiritual lives and our souls to care for. Indeed, what were his to begin with? Last week we discussed how John not only took this already understood concept in the world into which he was writing, known as the Word, to explain who Jesus really is to as many people as possible. But he also took a universal concept that anyone from any culture, any religion, any time period could understand. John took this universal concept of light versus darkness and described Jesus as that light, the light of the world. In God's word, light represented God's presence with his people and God's wisdom. Jesus, as John describes, is the embodiment of both. He is the manifestation of God's wisdom as recorded for us in God's word, and he is the manifestation of God's presence through his sending of the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. All of that is wrapped up in Jesus, the word, the life, and the light. And all that I've just described is found in the first five verses of chapter one, verses one through five. At this point in his book, when he gets to verse six, John switches gears for a second and introduces a new figure in human history. See, all this time, verses 1 through 5, John's only been focusing on Jesus and who he really is. And now he switches gears for a second and introduces a new figure in human history. The first one, the Word, the Life, and the Light, has always existed as one of the members of the Trinity of God. John already made that very clear in verse 1. Not only was he with God the Father at the time of the creation of the universe, but he was God and therefore has no beginning and no end. This new figure that John's introducing now does have a beginning and he does have an end, an earthly end anyways. His entire life's purpose was to be the predecessor of the God-man. It wasn't to be the focus on him. He was only the predecessor, the one to point to the God-man, the one who prepared God's people for the public reveal of God's Messiah. So if you brought your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 1. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn to John chapter 1 or look it up in your favorite Bible app on your smartphone. John chapter 1, we're going to start in verse we're going to read verses 6 through 8 all, all at the same time. And this is what our scripture reading was. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. As I mentioned in my first message in this series on the Gospel of John, this gospel is the fourth 
and last of the four Gospels to be written. The other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, along with Luke Part 2, Luke's sequel, the book of Acts, were all most likely written before the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and its temple in 70 A.D. About another 15 to 25 years passed after the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple before God has the Apostle John write this fourth gospel. There are two different worlds. These are two different worlds into which the gospel writers wrote. One world in which Jerusalem was the capital city of Judea and still held the Jewish temple, and one world where neither identity existed anymore. Two completely different worlds. But all four Gospels include this figure, John the Baptist. The first three Gospels treat John as a historical figure, the forerunning messenger sent on ahead to announce the arrival of a king and a prophet whose purpose was to prepare people's hearts for the arrival of of the Messiah. He reintroduced this concept of repentance into the Jewish understanding of their relationship with God. By the point in time of human history when John the Baptist comes on the scene, That's all but non-existent in in the Jewish faith. It's all based on how well or how well they think they can follow the Jewish law by that point. And the Pharisees are the ones who are driving that point home. You, You are supposed to only focus on the law, only focus on following the rules. The point of the Jewish faith at the time John the Baptist shows up was never just simply to try this, to follow the Mosaic law as well as possible. It was never meant to be that way when, when, when John the Baptist showed up. It was always meant to drive the Jewish people to repentance. That's what the Mosaic law was always supposed to be about, to drive them to repentance and commit their hearts to God in love for him. Not including Jesus... John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. He is the transition into the next age of humanity and faith, known as the Messianic Age, which we still live in today, where we recognize and know Jesus as the fulfillment of everything the Messiah was prophesied to be. Everyone before and up through John the Baptist was saved by God through their faith in the coming Messiah. John the Baptist was the turning point to salvation being found in putting faith in Jesus of Nazareth as that Messiah. You see where John fits into human history here? He's the turning point where it's no longer we're putting our faith into the coming Messiah. He's the turning point of now we put our faith in Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. All throughout human history, all throughout Jewish history, God raised up one man to transition into different sections of that history. Obviously, Adam was the very first man who kicked off human history in the first place. And it was through this one man, as Paul will reference in Romans, that sin enters the world, that which we still battle today. Noah 
was the transition into the post-apocalyptic flood world during which an ice age could very well have happened following the catastrophic upheaval of the Earth's climate and we have these breathtaking lakes dug out by the receding glaciers. Abraham was the transition into the birth of God's chosen people. Jacob was the transition into the Jewish people exploding in population in Egypt. Moses was the transition into living by God's law and the birth of the Jewish nation. Saul was the transition into the Jewish kingdom. David was the transition to the revelation of a messianic royal bloodline. And Solomon was the transition to temple worship. Over the next hundreds of years, God would raise up prophets to reveal more and more about the Messiah and transition the Jewish nation into exile and return back to Judah. And now, John the Baptist is the last of those Old Testament prophets, transitioning the Jewish people and the whole world, really, into the Messianic age. It is through this Messianic God-man that all the rest of human history has been reliant upon for the past 2,000 years and will continue to answer to for the rest of human history as we know it and into eternity. So it was no accident that God calls John the Baptist to this very unique position. John the Baptist was responsible for transitioning the whole way that people viewed God and their relationship with him, thus preparing them to have any understanding of repentance from sin and trust in the coming Messiah. See, before, everybody just based, a lot of people just based what they thought their way to God was, was on how well you could follow the Jewish law. It was all based on what you could do. And John the Baptist transitioned them into, no, it's not about what you can do, how much you can do. It's, you got to put all that aside and you need to know, I can't do anything. I can't do anywhere near enough to measure up to God's standard. All I can do is repent of my sin. That's the only thing I've contributed to this relationship, this broken relationship between God and me. And therefore, it's the only thing I can do is repent of that sin and come to him in faith. As such, the Apostle John treats John the Baptist in this theological concept, uh, context. Like I said, the first three Gospels treat John the Baptist as the historical fulfillment of prophecies concerning the messenger of the Messiah. You can go back and look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see how he, he fulfills those different prophecies of what the predecessor is supposed to be. But the Apostle John views John the Baptist's purpose in the theological light of who Jesus theologically really is. Remember, he spent all this time on verses 1 through 5 and talking about Jesus' deity. So now what's John the Baptist's place in that theological context? Just as Jesus was to be viewed in both his human and God nature, John the Baptist was to be viewed as the instrument of that divine revelation. See, like I've said multiple times, faith in Jesus simply cannot be discovered by human convention. It's impossible. Whether it's through science, philosophy, or human reasoning. 
Paul's very clear about that in, that in his letter to the Corinthians. It can only be given through God opening our spiritual eyes. There's something that's both physical and spiritual that happens when we put our faith and trust in Jesus for the salvation of our sins. It's only through the working and spiritual call of the Holy Spirit to our spiritual selves, to our souls, that we finally understand with both our minds and hearts our need for Jesus, and then we make a cognitive and physical decision with our brains to commit our lives to Jesus. There's two things going on. There's a physical and a spiritual movement going on. In the same way, the Apostle John reveals John the Baptist as both this physical and historical transition to Jesus, but also his place in the theological, transcendent, and spiritual plan of God for the world. Take a step back and look at John the Baptist through this these spiritual eyes, not just through historical eyes, but spiritual eyes. If you read John the Baptist's origin story in Luke, you find out that his very beginning was a miraculous act of God. See, it wasn't just some random person that God said, you, you're going to be my transition figure. Even his conception was a miraculous act of God. Without God intervening in human history, we would not have even had John the Baptist. Isn't that, isn't that mind-blowing to think about? If you read the very beginning of Luke's gospel, you will very quickly discover that John's birth was prophesied by an angel to John's dad while he was providentially serving in the temple. John's dad couldn't have even, he might not even been there except through God's ordaining and God's providence that he was the one to be serving in the temple that year. Furthermore, like Abraham and Sarah, John's parents had been able, unable to bear children their entire lives. And at that point, we're well past the biological possibility to conceive and have a healthy pregnancy and birth. So it's only through the miraculous intervention of God that John the Baptist's existence was even a possibility. Then, when John's mom's cousin, a teenage girl named Mary, arrives with a secret pregnancy that no one on the face of the earth knew about except for her, John, in his sixth month of womb development, leaps for joy. Isn't that awesome? He's the only other human on the face of the earth to know about this secret pregnancy. As I'm sure you've seen elsewhere, it's very telling in a pro-life understanding that the very first person to recognize the Messiah on earth, other than his mother, who was told by Gabriel, the very first person to recognize the Messiah, who at the time was only maybe at most four weeks in the womb at that point, was also an unborn child. These two are having this interaction between each other, both being unborn children still in the womb. Even two to three months before he was even to be born, John the Baptist was given by the Holy Spirit a recognition that the Messiah had entered the world. And what does he do? The only thing an unborn child could do is starts jumping around in the womb. And I'm sure Elizabeth was, okay, calm down there, John, calm down. He was overjoyed. 
This was truly a spiritual connection between John the Baptist and his cousin Jesus. Fast forward about 30 years, and it's about the time, but not yet, for the Messiah to be publicly revealed to the world. God has called John the Baptist to live out in the wilderness along the banks of the Jordan River and scavenge for his food, getting his protein intake by eating locusts and maintaining his blood sugar level by risking his well-being in harvesting wild honey. Neither one were farmed and both had to be hunted for. Even in his everyday life, John the Baptist had to be completely reliant upon God for his daily needs, for his daily bread, so to speak. But John wasn't just a guy who wanted to live off the grid. This lifestyle was entirely connected to his life's purpose. Like I've mentioned, that purpose was to change the way that his fellow Jewish people thought about faith in God, in order for them to have any chance of receiving the coming Messiah as the salvation for their sins. See, if John the Baptist had not shown up and done what he, done, what he had done on the banks of the Jordan River, the Jewish people would have, they would have looked at the Messiah and said, so what? Why do I have any need for him? I've got the Jewish law. I'm following that as best as I can. So what? But John transitioned everybody's way of thinking into seeing that need for repentance and most importantly, seeing their need for a savior. They themselves were not the savior. They needed to see that. Jesus was their savior, the only savior. Again, when God gave the Jewish law to Moses, originally, it was always meant to be obedience to it because of faith and love for God. That was the foundation. It wasn't just following the law. It was love for God. Then that drove you to follow the Jewish law. But it started with love for God. But pretty much immediately, and definitely by the time of John the Baptist and Jesus, most people thought it was the other way around. That you obeyed God's law to earn God's love and forgiveness. There wasn't a need for repentance or a change of heart. See, we as believers, we take that for granted. We say, well, yeah, of course I need to repent and ask Jesus to be my savior of my sins and the king over the rest of my life. But that's not always the way that, that most people thought. At, at the time of John the Baptist and, and then Jesus, there, they, there wasn't a need for repentance in people's minds because they misunderstood, completely misunderstood, the entire point of what the Jewish law was. And sadly, that's what a lot of people today still believe, right? That if you do enough good works... You generally be a good enough person. You can earn God's forgiveness. You can earn entrance into heaven without repentance, without seeing a need to repent of your sin, and without a change of heart. But it all starts with repentance. It was never meant to be that way. It was never meant to be, what can I do? How much can I do? What can I do to earn God's favor? What can I do to gain entrance into heaven? It was never meant to be that way. It was always meant to be repentance. That way of thinking was all human convention and manipulation. And it still is today. What can I do? How much can I do? So John's purpose 
was for him to turn people's hearts and minds back to the original intention God wanted to have in his relationship with people so that they were ripe and they were ready to now hear the message of the Lamb of God. It all needed to start with repentance, a surrender to the fact that none of us measure up to God's standard of holiness and no amount of good works can change that. No matter how many you do and no matter how much you think you're a good enough person. has nothing to do with any of that. Because God's word is very clear. There is no one who measures up to God's standard of holiness. Not even one. The only one to ever do that is the God-man, Jesus. It's our sin that separates us from God and there's nothing we can do in and of itself to fix that problem. John's purpose was to provide that first step in being restored to God, repentance, in order to be forgiven of their sins. Luke 3.3 tells us exactly that. Then John went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River, preaching that people should be baptized to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. That's the very first step to accepting Jesus as our Savior and as our King, is that repentance. The act of baptism by full immersion in water was meant to publicly display that people had changed their minds and hearts about God's law and now surrender themselves to the fact that the only true way to restoration to God was always meant to be a heart change making the decision to not follow after sin and ask God for forgiveness of that sin. This message was so powerful. It was unlike anything else anybody had ever heard at that point. This message was so powerful that people flocked to the banks of the Jordan River to hear him and be baptized. And because this message was so powerful, many thought John could be the prophesied Messiah. See, this message was so obviously God-given that people instantly connected this message of repentance with the Messiah. They just knew it in their hearts. And they knew that the Old Testament prophets prophesied about a change of heart, being directly connected with the coming Messiah. God would turn his people's hearts back to him through his Messiah. It's no wonder then that the people are looking around then and seeing the only one proclaim, proclaiming repentance and turning back to God and saying, well, maybe he's it. He's the only one we're seeing right now. Maybe he's the Messiah we're waiting for. We read in Luke 3.15, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon and they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. But John knew what his life's purpose always had been. To not have anything to do with any pride or exaltation in connection with the Messiah's arrival, but to only point to that Messiah. That was his entire life's purpose. Merely to point at someone else. It has nothing to do with me. Everything to do with with the Messiah. As the Apostle John says again in verse 7, he came as a witness to testify about the light so that people would believe in the light. John the Baptist always knew 
He was only the predecessor. In fact, while he was sitting in prison, anticipating his earthly departure, and some of his friends were jealous of Jesus' ministry, and that all were going to him for the truth of God's kingdom, what was John's response? It's not bitter. It's not confused. What's John's response? He says, it is the bridegroom who marries the bride, and the bridegroom's friend is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. He must become greater and greater, and I must become less and less. Again, John provided the first step to faith in the Messiah, and that was repentance. It has to start there. It always has started there, and it always will start there with repentance and a change of heart. Jesus and his disciples will flesh that out into the biblical understanding that repentance is the first step which automatically leads to making Jesus the salvation from our sin. But it always starts with knowing we're sinners in need of a Savior and repenting of our sin. John knew what his life's purpose was, and he carried that life's purpose out excellently. John's life's purpose was this, that his life had nothing to do with what he personally wanted in life, nothing to do with that, and everything to do with making Jesus known in other people's lives. It was very simple. It was very concise, and he held to that excellently. I'm not going to say perfectly because no human is perfect except for Jesus, but he did it excellently. This is the Apostle John's introduction of John the Baptist. We'll be discussing the things about and surrounding John the Baptist as we get further into this book. But for now, I want to focus on what the Apostle John says was this predecessor's life's purpose, that Jesus become greater and greater and he become less and less. John the Baptist served as not only a transition from the Old Testament understanding of faith in God into the New Testament understanding of salvation provided by Jesus being the only basis for faith in God, but he also serves as the exemplary follower of Jesus. Once we repent of our sin, Once we ask God for the forgiveness of that sin based only on Jesus taking our place on the cross and paying our sin death payment and make Jesus the king over the rest of our lives, in short, becoming a disciple or follower of Jesus, our lives are not our own anymore. That's a very hard pill to swallow, but that's what God's word is very clear about. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 5. Our lives are not our own anymore. The Apostle Paul explains to the Corinthian church that all of who we are, all of of it, our physical selves, emotional, psychological, mental, especially spiritual, all that we are is not ours anymore. We have been bought with an impossibly high price. The blood and life of Jesus Therefore, we have no right to take our lives back into our own hands 
to do with as we please. That's what we repented of in the first place, taking our lives into our own hands. When we first came to Jesus, that's what we repented of. So how should we return back to that way of life? All of who we are is to be lived in service to our king and his plan and his purpose for our lives. Just like John the Baptist's last words, Jesus must increase in our lives and what we portray to the world with every passing day. And who we think we are must decrease with every passing day. Even in our conversations with, about Jesus with other people, all we can do is plant the seeds of the gospel in people's lives. We can't force anyone to give their lives to Jesus. Why? Because once again, it has nothing to do with us. The Apostle Paul notes this also to the Corinthians. I planted the seed in your hearts, and Apollos, a fellow uh, um, leader of God, watered it, but it was God who made it grow. It had nothing to do with Paul, nothing to do with Apollos. They were the only ones who planted the seeds of the gospel in the Corinthians' hearts, but it was God who made those seeds grow. It's not important who does the planting or who does the watering. What's important is that God makes the seed grow. Amen. And everything that we are and every relationship we have with God and with others This must be what we seek our lives to be. That God sees Jesus in us more and more each day and that others see Jesus in us more and more each day. If most of what others see when they look at you is is you being selfish and you being self-centered, then something needs to change and change very quickly. You need to be brutally honest with yourself. Perhaps you've never actually done this first step. Perhaps you've never actually repented. And that is the most dangerous place to be in, brothers and sisters, before God, in terms of your soul. We all need to examine the decisions we make on a daily basis and determine how much of my life is doing what I want to do, or acquiring what I want to acquire, and how much of my life is emulating Jesus, showing the world more and more of him. Is what I'm spending my life on increasing my emulation and portrayal of Jesus to this world, or keeping me from it? Is what I'm doing with my everyday life and decisions helping me be more like Jesus or hurting my relationship with him? Am I continuing to live in and do what I know is sin and is not pleasing to God? Or am I getting everything I possibly can get right with him, right with him, to seek after Jesus' righteousness in my life? Is what I'm aspiring to with my life, to simply be more like Jesus? Or is it anything else this world offers or what my pride desires? What am I focused on with my life's aspiration? 
Is my life's purpose to seek after what I want or to be Jesus and share Jesus' message no matter the difficulty, no matter the heartbreak, no matter the response? These are the honest and hard questions and areas of our lives that we need to examine. John the Baptist knew that his life's purpose was what all of our Life, everybody sitting here, everybody watching online later, what all of our life's purpose should be to testify and to point to the light of the world, to not have the focus on us, to not have our lives be about us, but only to point, only to point to the Savior. When we do that, Jesus increases more and more, and who we are decreases more and more. May we surrender more and more of our lives to the Holy Spirit's transformation in order to make them more and more like Jesus. And when others look at us, may they not know where we end and where Jesus begins. May it all just be Jesus. For all they see when they look at us is who Jesus is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this pivotal figure in human history and in the history of faith. We thank you uh, for what John the Baptist did. We thank you that he uh, introduced this first step, repentance, surrendering all of who we are up to God, asking him for forgiveness of our sins, turning from that sinful way and, and chasing after him. And we know from the rest of Scripture that that goes hand in hand and automatically flows into accepting Jesus as that Savior from our sin and the King over our lives. I pray that if there's anybody here who has never repented, who has never said, Lord, my sin separates me from you, I can't do anything about that. There's no amount of good things that I can do to outweigh that. Lord, I pray that they would do so today, that they would say, Lord God, I repent of who I am. I repent of my sin. I chase after you. I take Jesus as the Savior of my sin, and I make him the king over the rest of my life. And Lord, let today be the first day of their new life. I thank you for the power of your word, that even in looking at a figure, a person who wanted himself to be so diminished that all that people saw when they looked at him was Jesus, that we see who we should also emulate and making Jesus more and more every day with every decision that we make, who people see in us instead of who we are. And now, Lord, as we come before the Lord's table, I pray that you would transition our hearts to partake in that. And that if there's anything that, along these lines of repentance, if there's anything that we have not yet repented of, maybe we have put our faith in Jesus years ago, but there's something that we hold on to. If there's something that we haven't repented of, I pray that we would do so now, so we don't diminish, we don't spit on, we don't demean the sacrifice that you made for us on the cross. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.